Well, good morning. Um, if you're a visitor here with us today, um, we want to welcome you. And uh, I am uh, Jordan Dayub. I'm the pastor and minister here at West County Presbyterian Church. We're delighted that you've uh, decided to worship with us this morning. We are continuing in Luke as we wrap up. There are only two chapters left, and uh, we'll probably wrap up here in the next month and a half before Advent season. We are in Luke 22. Uh, excuse me, actually, I have a quick announcement before our sermon this morning. Yes, thank you. I almost forgot. Uh, we are going to have a joint um, seminar with River City Church, which is a sister church plant of ours in St. Charles. The pastor there is a friend of mine, Brian Roskin. And Craig Bernard, our very own Craig Bernard, um, is, uh, Craig, I don't know how, forgive me if I'm describing you wrong, but he's sort of an expert in um, kind of like personality assessment. And if you've heard of those before, it's not kind of the boring, you know, here's how you're wired. It's really, uh, it's really exciting. And he's been doing it for probably over 20 years with not just churches, but organizations here in St. Louis. And um, he, there's no charge other than the curriculum, which I think is probably 10, 15, maybe 20 bucks at tops. And we're going to meet on a Saturday, uh, us and River City Church. And Craig is going to take us through um, a personality insight seminar. And uh, it's November 3rd, and we will have some signups in the coming weeks for that also. So if you were paying attention, you noticed that this fall is really packed. And we do that on purpose, not to tire you out, but just to give you options, because there's a lot of different things going on, and some events may be for some and not others, uh, but we wanted to create a variety of things that, uh, that appeal to our congregation, and also are things that you can invite others to. So uh, everything we have going on is with the intention that you would invite somebody. It's not just for us, but hopefully they are um, uh, events that also are outreach um, opportunities. So that is November 3rd. We'll talk more about that as the weeks come on as we get uh, closer to the event. So that's just one last announcement I wanted to make. Luke 22, starting in verse 1. We're talking this morning about uh, the final Passover and the first communion. Hear the word of God. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Jesus, that is. They were seeking how to put Jesus to death. And then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us, that we may eat it. And they said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? And he said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table, and the apostles with him. 
And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. Let's pray. Father, now, Holy Father, we thank you and for this word and pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit to guide us and illuminate our hearts that we may know you deeper through Scripture and that we may grasp what this final Passover and First Communion meant for the disciples and means for us today. We pray these, now, these things now that you would convict our hearts and convince us that we may be transformed by the hearing of the word. In Christ's name, amen. Well, as we think about events in the life of Jesus that led up to his death, it's important for us to recognize that it was in the divine plan all along for Jesus to be betrayed, tried, found guilty, and crucified. Jesus knew that's why he came into the world. He came into the world to die. God sent him into the world to die. He wasn't uncertain about that, and yet wicked and evil men who conspired and arranged his capture, arrest, trial, and execution, willingly betrayed and murdered the Son of God of their own free will and wicked intentions. That's important for us because we, on one hand, know that it was God's will to send Jesus Christ to die for our sins, and at the same time, the wicked men who arranged that execution are culpable for their guilt in the matter. How do those two things work together? Not exactly sure. God is sovereign and we're still responsible for our actions at the same time. And so the betrayal of Jesus by Judas is an important primer for the Last Supper because the meal, as you could tell as we read through it, is not just this casual gathering of diners. But it's the last time that Jesus will ever eat and drink with his disciples who he's cultivated this intimate relationship with over the last three to three and a half years until they are reunited in the kingdom of God. When my wife's uncle was dying of stomach cancer about 15 years ago, he had a terminal diagnosis and they had a living funeral for him. All of his friends from work and some of his neighbors and family members showed up to this, this, uh, this pub in California, and they all had a meal with him. And it was fun. They all had a meal and a few drinks. It was fun, and at the same time, it was incredibly sad knowing that their dear friend only had a few more months to live. 
If you can imagine a gathering like that. Meals are supposed to be joyful occasions where people exchange, you know, friendship and fellowship. But can you imagine the meal of the disciples sitting with Jesus knowing that this was the last time they were going to eat with him and drink with him? You can imagine the atmosphere. Now, Jesus knows he's going to be betrayed, and, and we're, we've been moving through the book of Luke, and so it has us ending, not ending, but it has us coming into the Passion Week around this time of year, although the liturgical calendar typically has it you know, uh, um, around the time of Easter, but this is just where our timing with the wrap-up of the book of Luke has us, and that's why we're talking about it at this time of year. But Jesus knows he's going to be betrayed and tried and found guilty and sentenced to death. So his words here are extra pregnant and with profound significance, if I can put it that way. So what Jesus says here at this meal has especially profound and important significance. And it's no coincidence that Jesus, his trial and death converge with the Passover in Jerusalem. In fact, the symbolism is eloquent. In the first Exodus, the Hebrews were saved by the slaughtering of a lamb, eating its flesh and spreading the blood on the doorposts of their homes in Goshen, which was sort of a a suburb in Egypt where the Egyptians lived, the Hebrews and the Israelites, they lived in the land of Goshen. And God told them to slaughter a lamb because he was sending the tenth plague on the Egyptians, which was the angel of death, which was to smite the firstborn of every home in Egypt. And God told the Israelites, you know the story, to slaughter a lamb and put its blood on the doorpost. And when the angel of death swooped down into Egypt, all of the homes that had the shed blood of the lamb over their doorposts, the angel would spare and the firstborn would not be killed. The houses that had the blood shed, where the flesh had been consumed. And when the Israelites and the Hebrews fled Egypt, they ate unleavened bread because there was not enough time to allow the dough to rise. And so they ate bread that, was, that had not risen. That's what it means when we say unleavened bread, because there was such an urgency to the exodus. All of this is taking place in the Exodus. The Passover celebrates the liberation of the Israelites from Egypt, while the unleavened bread commemorates how the Israelites ate urgently on the eve of the Exodus. And originally, Passover and unleavened bread were two separate feasts, but by the time of Jesus, they merged and they were one. The Feast of Unleavened Bread took place during the time of Passover, and they really had become one celebration. Now, there's another exodus. Or let me reemphasize that. Now, there's another another exodus. And so, at the time of Jesus' death, there is sort of this new exodus where God is about to deliver his people again through the slaughter of another lamb. And this death is going to bring about a new covenant, which will bring in the kingdom of God. Verse 14 says, And when the hour had come, 
he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I've earnestly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until the until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it amongst yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now, typically in the ancient world, just like today, when you, when you sit down for a meal, everyone has their own cup. And so what Jesus is doing here is especially significant because he takes his own cup and he passes it among the disciples for each one of them to take a sip. There to Jesus blesses the cup and passes it, and each one of them is to take a drink from it. Now, New Testament scholar Frederick Danker writes, this would have made a profound impression on the apostles because drinking the cup of someone was understood to be a means of entering into a communion relationship with that person to the point that one shares that person's destiny for good or for ill. Maybe you've heard the word communion your entire life, but have never really thought about what the word means. When you're in communion with someone, you are entering into the fate of that someone. You are entering into a covenant and a bond with that person. And so when Jesus passes the cup, the disciples are entering into and sharing Jesus' own fate for good and for ill. In sharing the cup, the disciples are united to Jesus' suffering and glory. And this is why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4 that we always carry about the body, in the body, the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may be revealed in our body. The Christian life is not easy. I heard someone recently professor at the seminary say, God loves you and has a difficult plan for your life. That is the Christian walk. Faith is not easy. Faithfulness is not easy. And so there is a death, a dying in us all the time as we die to this world. As we die to ourselves, somehow the life of Jesus is being made manifest in our dying. As we daily take up our cross, as we experience these little crucifixions throughout our life, as God draws us closer and allows us to share in the suffering of Jesus. So when suffering comes in your life, you may think, what did I do wrong? You should probably be asking, what did I do right? If you're following Jesus, you will suffer. And in that suffering, the life of Jesus is made manifest and revealed to all those looking at you and watching you as you endure trials and hardships and sufferings and daily crucifixions. The communion means that we are sharing in the fate of Jesus for good and for ill, his suffering and his glory. They share the cup. Now, throughout church history, there, has been, there have been theories about exactly how the crucifixion atones for us. We all agree that on the cross, Jesus Christ atoned for our sins, making it possible for us to be reconciled to God the Father, but we're not exactly sure how. There's all these different theories, 
And in our creeds, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed, and in the Westminster Confession, that is also something that is not exactly worked out. The church historically, for its diversity, has never exactly agreed on this. And this morning at 10.30, an email went out to all of you, kind of unpacking some of these crucifixion theories. But briefly, there's the moral influence theory, the ransom theory, the Christus Victor, Christ as Victor theory, the satisfaction theory, the penal substitution theory, the government theory, the scapegoat theory. Now, why do I mention this? It seems like such a diversion, right? We're talking about Jesus' suffering, the crucifixion, our communion with him. Here's why I mention these theories. Because Jesus didn't give his disciples a theory at the Last Supper. He gave them an act to perform, specifically a meal to share. That's what he gave his disciples, a meal to share. And it speaks more volumes than any theory ever could. The act itself, the meal itself, participating in the meal itself. When the disciples sat down for the Passover meal, which was the first communion, Jesus simply said, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this is the cup poured out for you, which is the new covenant in my blood. In John 6, which is a parallel verse of Luke's passage here, he says, whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And what Jesus is saying is that we find our life through his death. We find our life through his death. See, just as the, slaughters, the, 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 the slaughter of the lamb and the lamb's blood on the doorpost of Egypt caused the Hebrews to escape the angel of death when he passed over them, literally saving their lives, Jesus' blood is life for all of those that are covered by it. We are the blood-bought people, ransomed from death, just like the Israelites all those thousands of years ago. And just as the unleavened bread nourished the bodies of the escaping Hebrews as they fled from Egypt, well, Jesus' body also nourishes us. In John chapter 6, after the miracle of the bread and the loaves, the disciples ask for more bread. They come back the next day saying, can we get some more of that? And Jesus said, you come to me for bread, but I have bread that I can give you that you will never hunger again. He said, well, where is this bread? And Jesus makes this revelation, this astounding statement for the disciples who are not very good at thinking metaphorically, apparently, or spiritually. And he says, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And so, when Jesus makes this statement here, this is my body which is given for you, the cup that is poured out for you, the new covenant in my blood, do this in remembrance of me, 
Jesus is replacing the Passover with the communion meal. The Passover that the Israelites had celebrated for 15 centuries up until this point is all pointing forward and looking forward to this event. Jesus' crucifixion. And the meal that Jesus introduces here is replacing the Passover. Now, I want us to take away four important ideas about communion. Number one, communion grounds our unity in this world. I'm talking about this, and I'm delineating a few points because for many of us, especially if we grew up in the faith, we've been taking part of communion most of our whole lives and may not have really stopped to think deeply about what it represents and what it means. So I have just four points I want to move through. So number one, communion grounds our unity in this world. The Lord's table binds together all sorts of people from all sorts of backgrounds and conditions. This table that we're going to come to in a few minutes is a unifying act bringing us together. And Paul tells the Corinthians, because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. We're all one. We all have different backgrounds, different names, different family histories. We all come from different places, some of us different parts of the country, different parts of the world. But when we come together as the people of God, especially when we come together at this table, we are one people. We are one body, for we all, Paul says, partake of the one bread. And that means it's not okay to be at odds with your brother and your sister. Just as it would be weird or awkward to show up to a family dinner and your brother or cousin shows up and you haven't talked to them in 10 years. It would rightly be bizarre and weird and uncomfortable. And in the same way, because the meal grounds us in unity as the people of God, it's not okay for us to be at odds with one another. If your brother or your sister has a beef with you or you have a beef with them, work that out before you come to the table. Because this is a meal of unity, not division. This is a meal that is meant to unite us in love and fellowship. And so it's not okay that we're not okay with one another. Now, we don't all get along the same. Some of us are closer with each other than others. That's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about strife and animosity between us as the people of God because the world is watching us as the church and looking to us saying, is that what it means to have fellowship with God? Well, the answer is yes, and that's why our fellowship with one another needs to be healthy and whole. Number two The communion meal is a proclamation. The meal proclaims the Lord's death until he comes. The bread and the wine together visibly serve to to proclaim our unity with each other, but it also visibly proclaims that our unity with God and unity with each other is costly. We're proclaiming death that it took the Son of God to die for our sins for us to have fellowship with Him and with each other. This is costly. The grace that we've received is not cheap. It cost God dearly in the sending of His own beloved Son. It says that we have life because of Jesus' death and that anyone who would be saved must 
come through the death of Jesus. That's what the bread and the wine represent. His body given, his blood shed. Anyone who would be saved must come through the death and crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And it isn't just an intellectual experience either. It touches our senses. You know, sometimes as Western post-enlightenment rationalist kind of folks, for us, everything is a matter of what goes on up here. And that's okay. God has given us brains for a reason. He's given us the faculties of reason. But this is not just an intellectual experience. This is a sensory experience. And it's meant to be. We touch the bread, we taste it, it's gritty, it has texture, we chew on it in our mouth, we smell the wine or the juice and we drink it and it has flavor. All of those things are meant to say that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, our salvation, is grounded in this world. That God has not abandoned this world because it was beyond redemption and one day he's hoping in heaven to get it right because Satan rules the roost here. The crucifixion says that God did not abandon this world and communion grounds that salvation experience, the spiritual, in the natural. That heaven, in the person and work of Jesus Christ, came to earth. It's a real meal. Number three, the meal is also an encounter. Listen, Jesus is present giving us this food and drink. He is present with us. And as we take communion for a moment, we are the disciples 2,000 years ago, sitting around the table with Jesus, eating and drinking with him. And so when we come to the table, we're not distant heirs of the early church, but we're the same people. It's an encounter with Jesus in the same way the disciples encountered him at the Last Supper at that table as they ate and drank with him and as he instituted the communion meal. So it grounds our unity, number one. It's a proclamation, number two. And third, it's an encounter with Jesus. And in this way, time and space telescope together. Because within the sacramental world, past and present are one. We are one people, not just with each other, but with all of the church over the last 2,000 years. We are one. We all come together at this table because this is the self-same meal that the disciples participated in. The only difference now is that we celebrate the living Lord whom death has no power over anymore because Jesus Christ is risen from the grave. And so we're celebrating the presence of the risen Lord who is present with us in these elements. And then number four, and finally, the communion is a meal of covenant renewal. And Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. Now, for a lot of Christians, depending on your background, up, up, upbringing in the church, the communion was maybe done infrequently. Some people, like me, I grew up, we did it once or twice a year. It was just a bare memorial, and we were just supposed to feel sentimental feelings in our heart 
when we remembered, and the elements had no real power in and of themselves, but every time we take communion, I want to correct that, okay? It's not just a bare memorial. It is really a renewal of the covenant that we have with God and that he's made with us through his son Jesus, because every time we take communion, we're reminding God of his covenant promises to us. And we're renewing our allegiance to him. Every Lord's Day, every Sunday we come together and we take part of this meal, we are renewing our vow of commitment to him. And we are reminding him of the covenant promises he made to us. Because this is what the ancient Hebrews did at the Passover meal every year. And every feast that they had in the Old Testament was reminding God of his faithfulness and covenant promises to them. Uh, One theologian I respect put it this way. A covenant renewal is like the renewal of one's wedding vow. In the Lord's Supper, God reaffirms his word and promise for us personally and intimately. And we respond by receiving that word and responding with our own promise of allegiance personally and intimately. The communion meal is a meal of covenant renewal. In other words, as I said a minute ago, it's not just a bare memorial. We're not just remembering, we are doing that, and feeling warm and fuzzy inside, but in a real powerful, mystical and spiritual way, we are encountering the living Lord with all the disciples and followers of Christ that have ever lived, reminding him of his covenant, and he renews that covenant, and we renew our commitment to him every time we come together and eat this bread and drink this wine. And so when we hear the word preached, when we come to the table, we are reminded and God is reminded, and we are covenantally renewed. Now finally, in conclusion... If communion means sharing the fate of Jesus in his suffering and glory, well, in the Apostles' Creed, we say, I believe in the communion of the saints, which means that as the people of God who come together every week at this table, that we are in communion with each other. And we're to share each other's fate, which means when you mourn, I mourn. When you cry, I cry. When I'm hurting, hopefully you're hurting. When your brother or sister rejoices, you should rejoice. And when they're burdened, you should be burdened. And when they're in pain and suffering, you should feel the pain and suffering with them and for them and help them bear that burden because our fates and our destinies are tied up together not only in communion with Christ, the living Lord who suffered for us, but in, in the communion and fellowship with each other. And this is something that I keep harking back to like a broken record over and over again. You're going to get sick of it, but you can get some good teaching on your smartphone. I've said before, you know, our smartphone democratizes our decisions, right? Retailers are falling all over themselves because... This makes it, this puts power back in our hands where we can buy wherever we want online. You know, we can see which restaurants are the best places to go. And so the decision and the choice is back in our hand as individuals where we make decisions that are self-interested and that's okay. But this is something you can't get from your smartphone. 
or from your laptop because it's something we have to do together because this aspect, this is the third leg of the stool of your Christian faith, right? Prayer and scripture and the third, stool, the third leg of the stool is communion with each other. And if that's missing, you're going to fall over or you're not sitting upright, if I can put it that way. Faithful Christian living, sitting upright, is a combination of prayer and scripture and fellowship and communion with each other where we bear one another's burdens and share each other's fate. And this meal represents that as much as anything else. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you now that you sent your son, Jesus, to bear our guilt upon the cross and suffered the pains and torments of death and the grave for us. The Apostles' Creed says that Jesus Christ was buried and went into hell, Sheol, the grave, the torment of that day of crucifixion, the pain and torture that it was. And so it's no surprise for us, it shouldn't be a surprise that we too experience hardships and trials and sufferings in this life as we have communion with you. Lord, you also desire for us to be in communion with one another as we bear each other's burdens, serving you in the fellowship of suffering, and one day we will receive that glorification, that exaltation as we are caught up together with you in glory, in perpetual worship and fellowship with all of the saints. We pray now as we come to the table in a few moments that Lord, we would see that in the bread and in the cup. And we would feel that sense of unity, communion, and fellowship in Christ's name. Amen.